American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. We're officially recording. That's all I care about. The last episode of American Timelines by History for Jerks. Since Amy has decided not to ever do this again. That's not true. We're going to do some fun things. Oh, you're okay for still continuing, but just not in this way, maybe? Right. We'll try some new things. Not make it so hard to find stories. Yeah. So what I've decided, <clears throat> at least my idea, is I just looked up 1940 on Wikipedia, 1940 murders or disappearances or ghost stories or aliens. for the whole year, like we did with the 90s. Yeah, and then so if there's like 10 stories, we'll just do those stories and then I'll fill in just notable things between okay. so we don't have to month by month. Okay, <clears throat> that way we're not forced to just talk about dumb things, right? Because I found like forced to talk if, about dumb things, yeah. If you look up murders in 1940, yeah, there's like six. But or they, eight, you're not but two, have a, a but, lot of info on yeah, it. Yeah, like some of them don't have any, and two of them, or three of them are lynchings. And you just got a little bit of information, yeah. so we could just lump those three lynchings into one and yeah. just do an episode about all the lynchings, so we don't have to just, episode by episode, talk about how awful the yeah. world is and everything. So I think it'll be better in the long run, and we'll focus on more stuff we want to talk about right. and not have to slug through the monotony. But this is, that said, this will be the last episode, <laughs> episode of, monotony. of Monotony, slugging through the monotony. But this still, I still want this to be a closing of a chapter because uh, there's something in here that goes well with where we started. Oh. If, with 1990. Yeah. It's a good bookend. Okay. At the end. That I That's think will cool. Be good. Yeah. Okay. It's a little preview. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But with that, welcome. All right. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. By I'm history. Amy, and that's Joe. By History for Jerks. And always screws it up. Yep. I do screw. I still screw up that's every single time. The beginning is always screwed up. Yep. It's always screwed up. And that's why you love us, people, listeners. And aren't you so glad to have Amy back? The last episode, I don't know if you listened yeah, to it, but no. last episode was I think was it was a, just your friends. It was a... It was a uh, Finding friends or whatever. What do I call it? Uh, check... Uh, friend check. Or I'm checking with every single person on Facebook that's a friend of mine who will oh get God. on a podcast. Uh, but the first one was riveted. April Kirby, a transgender improviser well, that's cool. in town who is very talented. And yeah. so with Steve, with Gruff and I talking to her, yeah, I think it was an enlightening conversation for two straight guys to talk to someone who's trans right. about just their journey and their life. And, and they're currently transitioning right now. Yeah. And what more interesting than someone who's a performer, an improviser, right? Who is transitioning? Like, how crazy? Like, how much must they be going through? And you know, and just to kind of like talk about it. Like, what's it? What? What's your day to day? You know, they went to Duke. Um, anyway, so listen to that episode if you didn't. It's just an interesting conversation. I and I'm convinced that everybody has a story to tell. Like. There's somebody coming up that I talked to that yeah. went to school with somebody who got bit by a bat and got rabies while he was sleeping. Oh my in god! In his bedroom. I didn't think bats bit people. Yes, 
And he, he there's a kid he went to, she went to school with, and he got there's a different rabies. coming Did he up. Die? Yeah, he died of rabies. Oh my god! A guy in her high school, like that's bizarre. Yeah, that's gonna be another story. So you you don't know stuff about people unless you start talking to people and asking them questions. Okay. So anyway, this is December of 1959. We're gonna finish that. We're gonna close the door on the 50s decade. Uh, with and we'll have a nice little way to wrap it up in a bow, I think. Uh, but that's gonna be a surprise to Amy. Amy's got a murder. I've got some random dumb things and sports that Amy wants to hear about. But we're going to start with December 6th. Okay. Okay. And this will be an interesting. You're going to like this one. Okay. December 6th, 1959. Have you ever heard of popular teen heartthrob Neil Sadaka? I've heard the name, yes. You've heard him. So I'm not real familiar with him either. But he had his first international hit on December 6th of 1959 with a song called Oh Carol. Mm -hmm. Heard of it? No. It was it was addressed to his high school girlfriend Carol Klein, mm-hmm. who would later go on to find even greater success of her own as a singer and songwriter. Carol King. Carol King. Wow. Yeah. So how about that? Yeah, that's great. So look up "Oh Carol." I have no idea how it goes. I've never heard it. I would play it, but I'm afraid it's a copyright infringement, so I'm not going to. Okay. But little, 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 little yeah, snippet. Um, and then uh, oh, whoops, that was supposed to go on the sixth. That, what's what you said? I know, but I have December 1st. I forgot oh. to put it in order. So I have to backtrack to December 1st, and I would skip this, but this is too crazy of a thing. Okay. Allegheny Airlines Flight 371 flying from Philadelphia to Cleveland crashed, killing 24 of the 25 people on board. Oh, my God. One person survived. One survivor. Oh. He was the manager of a Philadelphia sportswear company who was on a business trip. Uh, two other passengers initially survived, but they died before they could even be transported to the hospital. Oh, jeez. And so there's an article in the, uh, what newspaper is this? The Age, I guess, is a newspaper. Uh, Montrezville, Pennsylvania, where they interviewed this guy who was, at the time, he was a bandaged figure in a hospital bed. Picture this, you know, being on a plane. Would you even want to survive at this point? I know. Louis Matarazzo, 35 of Philadelphia, is the only survivor of a plane crash. It took the lives of 25 others on board. He was severely burned in the wreck. In an interview, he told how the Allegheny Airlines plane rammed a 1,400-foot mountain during a snowstorm while trying an instrument approach to the airport at Monersville. He said from his hospital Bed. The hostess was just turning on the loudspeaker and telling us we were coming in. All of a sudden, the pilot seemed to uh, race the motors and pull up. There was a crash. The plane burst and exploded. Oh, my God. The Lord opened my side of the plane, and I was able to jump out. I fought my way through the flames Who, pa- oh, past the wreckage. Who opened it? The Lord. The Lord Jesus I'm sure Christ. Somebody, I'm sure somebody else opened the door. I think that, I think it just burst open oh. with the explosion you know I what i mean see. like so in his mind god opened it okay um i fought my way through flames past the wreckage i mean this out of anything this would make you believe in yeah, god don't you think you like why am i the only survivor some reason i'm alive and i try to look up did this guy ever become anything and even his name lou Matarazzo, there was a somebody more famous than him some retired new york cop like, yeah was not him you know so i don't know that if he died just a couple months later or or years later, if he did nothing with his life, you'd think, you'd think you would really do something exceptional, wow. or it's all chance. Um, 
Anyway, he tried to make his way back to the wreckage, but I couldn't make it. My legs were too stiff. The pain, I couldn't walk far. It was very treacherous and slippery. I couldn't see anyone. In my haste to jump out, I didn't notice anybody at all. It was 10 or 15 minutes or so. I don't know how long when I heard a cry for help. Afterwards, they told me what happened. My prayers, I tried to look at this thing intelligently. I was in the service. I tried to get control of myself. I couldn't see. I was blind. I tried to feel. My face and hands were numb. Then the rescuers arrived. Can you even imagine no. like the mental trauma going through that? Oh, you would have such trauma. And then survivor's guilt like that. probably, yep. I would guess, you know. So Big Yeah, time. that's a crazy. Anyway, there's an article uh Pennsylvania Oddities blogspot dot com. Blogspot. Blogspot. P A Oddities dot blogspot dot com. I can't say blogs blogspot. Blogspot. Anyway, it's a big in depth story about the whole thing. Um that's interesting uh, to read. If you like that kind of thing. And then on December 4th, 1959, Sam, an American-born rhesus monkey, was launched towards space from Wallops Island, Virginia. A I know you love thing. sending animals out in space. No, I do not. It was 11.15 a.m. on the Little Joe 2 suborbital flight to test the emergency escape mechanism. At 19 miles altitude, the capsule was jettisoned and climbed further to reach 53 miles, then returned to Earth. The spacecraft was recovered by the USS Bory, and Sam withstood the trip and recovery in good condition. Except for all the trauma. Yeah, but he didn't die. He probably had. Can you imagine what that monkey must have been thinking? I know. Poor guy. And our dog looks like a monkey, so it looks, probably looks just like her. Wheezy. Little Wheezy. Uh, December 5th, and you can see Wheezy. Uh, she'll have a brief cameo in the next episode of the Gruff and Loud Show that's coming out soon. Actually, it's already out. Episode 30, 42, I think. Anyway, December 5th, 1959. The Syracuse University Orangeman defeated the UCLA Bruins 36-8 to finish as college football's only unbeaten and untied team. The following Monday, Syracuse became the national champion, finishing number one in both the AP and UPI polls. Do you care about that? No, not at all. How about this? We'll get to controversy in sports, and it involves our mutual alma mater, alma mater. December 10th, 1959 was a Thursday in college basketball, Bowling Green State hit only 35.4% of its shots in a 74-68 loss. That's a low percentage. They lost to DePaul. Two days later, Bowling Green lost to Bradley, 99-72. Falcons player Billy Reed later testified that he and other players had been point-shaving after being paid by Jack Molinas in the point-shaving scandal. Mm. I think we talked about it in the 1960 episode. Remember that? No. Okay, well, we did. I blocked it we out. We blocked it out because of sports. Yep. But it was Bowling Green, BGSU, where we yeah, went. Falcons, it. Isaac Zumba. Uh, we are both Falcon grads. Amy's a grad, student grad. I'm an undergrad, barely. That's right. Tim Conway went there. December 16th, 1959 was a Wednesday. The improvise. <laughs> the improv. I can't say it. The- Improviser? Improvisational comedy troupe Second City was founded oh. on December 16, 1959, at 1842 North Wells Street in Chicago. Its cast has included such stars as Alan Arkin, Bill Murray, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Farley, Julie Louis Dreyfus, and John Candy, and me. I went to the training. You went to the Players Workshop. Yeah, but at this time, the Players Workshop of the Second City was the training, and oh, then they it was. split off. But. So, but I didn't go to Wells. I did audition once on Wells Street, and I didn't get anything. And they hated me and told me to get away and never no. audition for anything else and go do a stupid podcast that sucks. Nobody also in Chicago, 
that same day, Prohibition-era gangster Roger Tuohy was killed outside of his home at 125 North Lotus Avenue. He had been released from prison on November 24th after serving nearly 26 years. Oh, gosh. At 10.30 p.m. on December 16th, Tuohy and Walter Miller, a retired Chicago police detective who was his bodyguard, were gunned down as they entered the Elysia house. Two or three men stepped out of the shadows as Tuohy and Miller mounted the steps to the front door. Miller identified himself as a police officer, and the men pulled 12-gauge shotguns from beneath their overcoats. Tuohy was struck in the left leg above the knee and the right leg below the knee, and Miller was shot three times in the arms and legs. Miller was able to pull his revolver and fire five shots. Miller was taken to Loretto Hospital in critical condition. Tuohy was taken to St. Anne's Hospital, where he died an hour later on the operating table from loss of blood. He received last rites a few minutes before he died. As Tui moved into the oxygen tent, he told medical and police bystanders, I've been expecting it. The bastards never forget. So he was most known for uh, having been framed by his rivals in Chicago organized crime for the fake 1933 kidnapping of Jewish American organized crime figure and Chicago outfit associate John Jake the Barber Factor. The, okay. A brother of cosmetics manufacturer, Max Factor. Oh. You know who that is? Yeah. Are you familiar Max with that? Factor, yes. So, yeah. And then, yeah, so he was murdered uh, a month after his release. There you go. Mob mob stories. Chicago, big mob town. I know it. Big mob town. We live there. Remember we did that ghost tour and they yes. showed us the alley where, where John Dillinger, Dillinger was shot. I wonder if we can still do that. That tour, probably a similar one. That guy's probably dead. The guy who was leading the tour? Yeah, that John Lovitz. <laughs> he was like a drunk John Lovitz, John Lovitz wannabe. Yeah. He was creepy. It was a fun time. He was a creepy, lech weirdo. Oh, he was gross. But it was he was hot also. All right, December 17th, 1959, Bruno San Martino. You know who that is? No. He reigned as World Wrestling Federation champion from 1963 to 1971. Why are we talking about And again, from 73 to 77, but he made his professional wrestling debut here on December 17th, 1959. It was a big deal in the wrestling world. Oh, okay. Some of our fans love wrestling. Probably not many anymore, but maybe. But he made his debut pinning Dmitry Gabrowski in 19 seconds in a match in Pittsburgh. And that brings us to December 18th, 1959, which is a Friday. And Amy is going to tell us all about... Yes. A murder, a family murder that I forced her to tell this story because I think it's it's well, unsolved, it's one isn't of, it? One of Florida's most brutal unsolved murders. Really? Florida? And it Florida? And it occurred on six days before Christmas. Really? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. The entire Walker family, husband Cliff, who was 25 at this time. A 25-year-old father. Wife Christine, who was 24. Son Jimmy, three years old, and daughter Debbie, two years old, were killed in their small home in Osprey on December 19th. Okay. Wait a minute. So um, Christine and Cliff Walker and their two children had been running errands the day of the murders. Okay. Christine was the first to return to their home, and this was on the cattle ranch where her husband worked as a hand. So they didn't own it. They just worked worked it. Worked and lived. Worked as a hand. She was at the house long enough to put away the groceries before she was interrupted by an unknown assailant. So she was a girl interrupted? Or assailants. We don't know. There might be multiple ones. We don't know because it's well, unsolved. Well, she's 24. Although she ferociously fought her attackers with her high-heeled shoe, even staining the pumps with their blood, 
Her efforts were not really? enough to stop the assault. She so was, that's the thing. These, you ladies today don't wear high heels that much, so you don't have weapons. She was raped and then shot in the head with a twenty two caliber firearm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, that's brutal. So the shoe didn't really do shoe much. She didn't help much. Although these days it would have because you would have been able to do DNA on the blood. Oh. When Cliff returned home with Jimmy and Debbie, they too were gunned down. Then it's thought that the two-year-old Debbie was also drowned in the bathtub because the killers ran out of ammunition and the little girl did not die immediately. Oh, my gosh. That is awful. A two-year-old that's suffering a gunshot wound and then you have to drown her? Poor kid. So Daniel McLeod, which was Cliff's co-worker at the ranch, he's the one who discovered the horrific scene early the next morning when he stopped by to pick him up to go hunting. Investigators from the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office recovered evidence from the scene that included... Sarasota County, huh? Yep. It included the victim's clothes, Christine's bloody high heels, and a fingerprint from the bathtub faucet. Police also discovered that the killers took the couple's marriage certificate, Christine's high school majorette uniform, and Cliff's pocket knife. What weird things? I Why know. the marriage certificate? That would make would that lead you to believe that as, they knew as a him. crime? Yeah, that like it's a jealous something lover or something. Yeah, it has to be like connected. that would piss you off or something. What are you gonna do with that? Burn it? Or? I don't know. Police questioned hundreds or, of suspects. Or are you gonna impersonate them? Right. Does somebody have a reason to impersonate them? I don't know. They gave dozens of polygraph tests. Never made an arrest. Huh. Um, Daniel McLeod was a suspect. He was the one who found yeah, them. Yeah, automatically, uh, just because you found yep. them. Yep. That's what, if I ever find a dead body, sorry. Not saying nothing. <laughs> slowly backing out of the room and yep. never came there. Albert Walker, who was one of Cliff's cousins, he was a suspect, and the neighbor who made unwanted advances on Christine was another <sighs> suspect. But, yeah, I think it's 1959. Everybody's making unwanted, unwanted advances on To everybody. everybody. Um, there was even a serial killer named Emmett Monroe who confessed to the crime. Oh, well, it's but problem police solved. thought he was lying, so they did not find his confession credible. I wonder why they he probably he didn't lying. know any details or something. For he decades, was probably just trying to get counts. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I got this many. Yeah, probably. For decades, investigators believed that Richard Hickok and Perry Smith were the most promising suspects. Does okay. that ring a bell? That does. Hickok and Smith slaughtered the Clutter family on November 15th, 1959 in Holcomb, Kansas. Wait, did we just talk about just that like about. a couple episodes yep. ago? Yeah. It was last time, last episode. Yeah. And this well, was about 30... you were on. Right. About 34 days before the Walker family homicide. Wow. The Clutter murders and the investigation, that was the Truman Capote in Cold Blood. Thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so police eventually arrested those two on December 30th, 1959 in Las Vegas. And then they were tried and found guilty of the clutter murders Mm -hmm. and hanged. Um, and so the Sarasota County Sheriff's investigators thought that they could have perpetrated the Walker's slaying because they were known to have been in Florida during this time on the lam. Mm. Witnesses spotted them throughout the state between Tallahassee and Miami. They checked into a hotel in Miami Beach, which is about four hours from Osprey, and checked out the morning of December 19th. Hmm. That same day, Hickok and Smith were seen at a department store a few miles from the Walker home. A witness even noticed that one of them had scratches on his face. Hmm. According to the investigator's theory, Hickok and Smith were able to gain access to the home by pretending to sell their 1956 Chevy Bel Air, the same kind of car that Cliff had wanted to buy. Hmm. Investigators also thought... They stole Cliff's pocket knife because they had a similar one on them when they were arrested. No. Capote explored this theory in In Cold Blood, but doubted it because according to his research, the Hickok and Smith had an alibi for the time of the crime. Mm. Not only that, but they were questioned about the Walker killings, but passed a polygraph. 
However, well, police found inconsistencies in Capote's claims, so still considered them suspects. I, I'm believing these guys did it. In August of 2012, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office announced that they would exhume Hickok and Smith's corpses. Oh, really? In 2012? To ex- yep, to extract DNA samples in the hopes that they could match it to the DNA recovered from the Walker home. Yeah? On December 18th, 2012, almost 53 years after the Walker family was murdered, yeah. agents from the Kansas Bureau of Investigations dug up their bodies Yeah. while a deputy from the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office observed. So they extracted the DNA from their bones, then the samples were compared to the semen found on Christine Walker's undergarments. Gross. Unfortunately, the tests were inconclusive because the DNA from both the crime scene and the suspect's bones were either degraded or contaminated. So it doesn't mean they didn't do it. Right. It just means they couldn't. We're not sure. They couldn't test it. Uh, According to yet another theory, the murderers were acquainted with the Walkers. And Catherine Ramslin was a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University in Pennsylvania. She studied the case and maintains that whoever committed the crime knew the family because of the personal items taken. Yeah, because of that marriage certificate. Yeah, that makes me think... There are no other suspects, and the murder remains unsolved. Mm. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I could see the two clutter family guys doing that, but at the same time, why would they take the, the marriage certificate? Marriage certificate? But maybe there, was, maybe there were other things with that, you know, like maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe there's a weird thing you can turn that in for a free Arby sandwich. You show your marriage certificate and get a free Arby's. <laughs> Maybe. You know. All right. So <clears throat> that's the story of the Walker family murders. That was good. Thank you. I was on the edge of my seat. I still want to know what happened. And if you probably Google enough, there's probably eight other podcasts that have talked about that and they might have other things True. to say. True. But we're going to move on to the rest of the December. Yes. Because you guys have all waited for the lovely Amy to return. Sorry, we've been very inconsistent in releasing episodes. It's been yeah, it's been a time. I know it. With illnesses, yes, still and, going on. Yes, very. Amy's been very sick. I had hives. Um, yep. All kinds of things happening. Busy with school and a, a big giant international arts festival. I went to Bourbon and Beyond and Louisville. <laughs> all right. It's very important. Okay, December twentieth, nineteen fifty nine. Nine people were killed and 21 injured when a cattle truck struck a Greyhound Scenic Cruiser bus near Tucson, Arizona. The force of the impact was severe enough that calves were hurled into the bus. Oh, God. Isn't that awful? Yes. Yeah, it was horrific. Um, And cows were everywhere. Everyone on the bus, none from Tucson, was either killed or injured. Also killed were the bus driver and two men in the cab of the cattle truck. About 45 cattle were also killed. Some of them flung flung into the double-decker bus. Oh, my God. Which reported the star was a Christmas rush extra bound for for New Orleans from Los Angeles. Oh, my God. It happened at 4.15 a.m., just 15 minutes after the bus had changed drivers and departed from Tucson. Eight Arizona high... Highway patrol cars, nine sheriff's cars, nine ambulances, three fire trucks, and several wreckers raced to the scene. Many of the whaling ambulances made more than one trip. Most of the 67 head of cattle in the truck were 400-pound calves on their way to cattle staging near Phoenix. Officers had to shoot some of the badly injured cattle. Still other cattle were running around the countryside, the star reported. 
Two priests administered last rites to the dying, and officers took fingerprints of the victims for identification. That was awful. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm going into depth about that. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, and then December 22nd, 1959 is our little bow tie thing from, if you think back to our first episode from 1990 we covered. Mm-hmm. On December 22nd, on December 22nd, 1959, which was a Tuesday, Chuck Berry was arrested in St. Louis oh. shortly after midnight uh, after completing a concert at his club bandstand nightclub and charged with violati- violating the Mann Act. Are you, convi- oh. are you familiar with that? The Mann Act? God, yes. He ended up being convicted and served time in jail until 1961. So we talked about in the first episode of American Timelines, we talked about Chuck Berry, which is where we got our sign off. Right. Get out of here. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Berry. Yep. Because he was a, you knew, it was a famous thing in St. Louis where you're from. That's right. That he had cameras. Cameras in the ladies' bathroom. In the ladies' bathroom of his bar. So back in 1959, he violated that the Mann Act and was convicted and served jail time for two years. And I looked up the Mann Act on history.com because I wasn't familiar. So it's the name for a piece of federal legislation originally known as the United States White Slave Traffic Act of 1910. I knew it was something about slavery. Yeah, though intended as a tool for cracking down on organized prostitution, the vague language of the Mann Act regarding the transportation of women for immoral purposes rendered its provisions broadly unenforceable. It has been selectively applied in various high-profile cases over time, however, most famously in Chuck Berry's, and in that of the heavyweight boxing great Jack Johnson. In Berry's case, the Mann Act charges stemmed from what Berry contended was his offer of legitimate employment in his St. Louis nightclub to a girl he had met in a bar in Juarez, Mexico. Mm. Uh, Three weeks after being fired from Berry's nightclub, though, 14-year-old Janice Noreen Escalante, 14, same age as our daughter, took a different story to the St. Louis police, and Barry was arrested two days later mm. on this day in 1959. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. now, that's awful. It's a 14-year-old, obviously awful and terrible. But you gotta Well, think, and he must have assaulted her if she went to the police. Well, he fired her. He fired her? Well, she after being fired, three weeks after she got fired from his nightclub, he fired her. Then she went to the police. So you're saying that she's lying? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. Well, I would say later evidence would probably lead to the. I'm she's sure telling the truth. Yeah, if I'm, she said yeah. he did something. She basically abducted a 14 year old from Mexico and right. made her do God knows what in his nightclub. That's right. But here's where it gets hard, and I will say I'm a straight white male with tons of privilege, so I can't even begin to. Yeah. Um, weigh in on any of this because when it becomes a, a right one uh, oppressed minority right. oppressing another oppressed minority, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut and tell you what I found on the internet. Okay. Okay. Barry's defense uh, was not found credible by the all male, all white jury at his first trial. So mm-hmm. he was convicted on March 11th, 1960, and sentenced to five years imprisonment and a five thousand dollar fine. Now. He's a black man convicted by all, all white, white men. men. And although he would have his conviction vacated and a new trial ordered by Federal Appeals Court in October of 1960, 
due to disparaging racial comments made by the judge in his original trial. Oh, Jesus. Barry would be convicted again on a retrial in March 1961 and serve the better part of the next two years in prison. So the judge is like saying racial slurs. Like, so it's oh, like, how God. do you believe? You wonder how, how did many. anybody get a free trial? Yeah, if everybody was trial, oppressing everybody, you know, it's like maybe he did do this horrible thing, but you have a racist person in charge of it. So it makes you question whether that was fair. Maybe it wasn't fair, but maybe he really did do it. You know, it gets like, and yeah. I'm just like a white guy that I'm sorry for everything and I shouldn't be involved. But it's, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's like the whole Hamas Israel thing. It's like, I know. Those are two oppressed groups that I don't, I can't wait. I can't even begin to. Right. It's so complicated that I just stay in my lane and apologize to everybody. Yeah. All right. December 23rd, 1959 was a Wednesday. And at Stanford University, heart surgeon Dr. Richard Lower, with the assistance of Dr. Norman Shumway, not to be confused with Gordon Shumway, who was ALF, performed a successful heart transplant of one dog's heart into the heart of another dog. Why? The first dog heart transplant. Previously, the longest that a host animal had survived with a transplanted heart had been seven and a half hours. This mongrel survived for eight days before being painlessly put to sleep on December 31st because of an infection. It was a breakthrough. breakthrough. Yeah. You can probably put, you can probably just switch every dog's heart if you want now. Well, I mean, why Why would you? Oh, you want to be able to save the puppies. December 27th, 1959 was a Sunday, and Johnny Unitas led the Baltimore Colts to a 31-16 to win over the New York Giants to win the NFL championship. And then December 28th was a Monday. I'm going to just skip it. Well, Tom Landry, defensive coach for the Giants, was signed as the new coach of the Dallas Rangers, which were seeking admission as the NFL's 13th team. Tom Landry later coached the Dallas Cowboys because they were the Rangers at first, which I didn't know that. That's why I kept that in there. Oh. Okay. Two more things. December 29th, 1959 was a Tuesday. And the Justice League of America was introduced by DC Comics as issue number 28 of The Brave and the Bold. Uh, February, March 1960 is when it reached newsstands. And that's the same day that... Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Paula Poundstone, American comedian, author, actress, and commentator in Huntsville, Alabama, was born. She's the daughter of Vera, a housewife, and Jack Poundstone, an engineer, and her family moved to Sudsbury, Massachusetts about a month after her birth, and I've met her several times, and I'm going to, I'm bringing her back again to Blumenthal Performing Arts to perform. Paula Poundstone, everybody. And then December 31st, 1959 was a Thursday. And the longest-running missing persons case in the U.K. began when 16-year-old Mary Flanagan disappeared while on her way to a New Year's Eve party being held at the factory where she worked in Silvertown, Essex. Um, and she, the story there with her is she may have eloped with a man she had been seen with frequently in the last few weeks of 1959. He was supposedly another Irish immigrant and may have worked on the merchant Navy, although police say they never have been able to trace such a man. He was called Tom, and he undoubtedly existed under one name or another, and her father had introduced him to his daughter, the latter, 
in his early 20s at that time. He may have been her fiance. We don't know, but it's the longest ever missing case. We don't know what happened. Oh. So if we ever do a missing case podcast. And that's the same day that Val Kilmer was born. We're going to end with Val Kilmer's birthday. Well, I got one thing. Oh, that you if you, I just thought we used to do toys, Christmas presents. Yeah. And so I got pulled up a few Christmas presents okay. from 1959. Okay, let me just tell you that Val Kilmer's younger brother, Wesley, had ep- epilepsy and drowned in a jacuzzi at age 15. And Val Kilmer that's went terrible. to chat. Chatsworth High School, home of the Chancellors, and he also went to school with Kevin Spacey. All right. And then you can tell me this Christmas, 1959. What are some presents and toys? Famous Betsy Wetsy with steamer trunk. So is that a a doll that pees? That's a doll that pees. Pees. Urine, everybody. It's the urine episode. Pees and comes with all kinds of stuff. Uh, There was the Maverick and Bat Masterson costumes from the show Maverick. I don't know that show. It was a Western. No, as a. Do you think subconsciously they came out with a toy that pees to like train little girls early how to change diapers? Probably. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Misogyny? Yep. Then there was the Dick Clark autograph doll. Oh, my God. Teenage Idol. As the most alive looking autograph doll from vinyl head to stylish shoes. He's an exciting autograph item for memorable occasions. Did you ever have a crush on Dick Clark? No, I was not that old. Whoa. Then, of course, Barbies. There was a submarine. There was a drive-in theater. Electric convertible. A drive-in theater? So, like, for toys? Like, toys? It's like um, Movie Land Drive-In. Miniature of a real outdoor theater. Has parking mm. lot. Six metal cars. Entrance and exit lanes. Uh-huh. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of action that goes yeah. on in a drive-in <laughs> yeah, theater. Yeah. So, I don't know how fun that you would be to play with. Just making all the, all the cars rock back and forth. Because doing it. There's little Orby. He's a happy-faced space-age critter. Defies gravity as he climbs walls, mirrors, or smooth, non-porous surfaces. There's Mary Bell, the Get Well doll. She's all jacked up. She's got like a broken leg and some crutches. <laughs> and It comes with all kinds of shit. I should ask, we should ask our moms if they had any of these because they were like eight. Play so. school camera bug. It was a colorful cord. Holds wood camera in position. The film can be removed and there's a stylus to draw a picture. Ooh. And uh, it's pretty much. And then we're about to enter the 60s. Yep. And so you can go back several episodes and listen to our 60s season. Yankee Doodle Secret Rocket Test Center. Ooh. Yes. Send up rockets and satellites. At launching time, warning siren sounds. Pull lever and automatically open doors and raise rocket launcher to firing position. Countdown clock ticks off a countdown from 10 to 1. At zero count, a rocket with a satellite. Fires automatically, so that's pretty sweet. Poor Val Kilmer wasn't born yet until December 31st. All right, that's all I wanted to say. Well, that was our episode. Thank you, everybody, for a lovely run of American Timelines. Yeah, it was a fun season. That is the end of season five, I think, right? 90s, 80s. Each season lasts three years. Well, this one lasted way long. We finally ended a season. We've ended a season of American Timelines. It's been a long time, eight million episodes in season five, but we're going to go back to shortened seasons. We're going to kind of, this is the apex, and go back down. We're going to do the 40s. We'll do the 40s, though, because I think there's a lot of stuff. I started falling down a rabbit hole of World War II, but I don't think we want to just make it a World War II no, podcast. we're not going to do that. But I'm just so ignorant when it comes to World War II, so maybe that's a separate thing yes. I can do somewhere, but we can allude to it. But we're going to talk more about the murders and then just some pop culture events. We're not going to go through every single thing that's ever happened. Yes. Uh, we've gotten away from that, but 
gotten away from what our original thing was. More right. fun and pop culture and right. murdery and aliens and anything crazy. Yeah, but we do need to still talk about all those awful lynchings. But right, we don't want to just dwell on it because it's like it makes you sad. It's important to note. Yes, when those things have happened. Yes, and um, other than that, make sure that it. You want to hear something awful. No. Th- that's true? No. About right now in 2023? No. You know how Scholastic does book fairs at schools and you can go to the book fair and pick out books? Yeah. They have this year an option to opt out of diversity. <sighs> and my school had to do it because of the state laws in North Carolina. Oh, no. So there's no... You're not allowed to have any... LGBTQ. Books, no... People of color. uh, Very little people of color. No LGBTQ. I can't believe that's a thing. That (laughs) is appalling. And if you're listening to this, please take action. What action can we take? Vote blue, at least. The very least. And get these extremists out of control. These crazy nuts. And they don't. And that's the thing. These extremists that are in power, they don't care about the things that they're doing. No. All they want to do is stay in power. Right. So they go to places and they just drum up lunacy and make you believe it and then get you scared and then want everybody all up in arms about what they're saying. Like they're probably telling people. They're trying to put out books to make. They want white slavery. You know who knows right. what they're saying. They're the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim oh, Jordans. Like crazy. They're insane. They are. They're fucking insane. And they're getting a lot of power. And yeah. we got to stop that because they're because of misinformation. It's awful. It's awful. Anyway, sorry. But that's that was just a little something. I that's awful. I had no idea that was a yeah. thing, and that makes me sad. And I didn't want to know it, and now I know it, and I'm pissed. Yep. And we got to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, it's time to get out of here. This is a shorter episode. It's right. just one month. We just have a few things. But I know everybody's happy to hear Amy's wonderful voice. Your voice is really I got golden. a cold right now. So you have a cold, of... but still, it's a golden voice. I don't know about that. You should be proud of it. You should sing. Sing us out, Amy. Sing us out, Amy. No, I'm not going to. Sing a little uh, 1959. Drop, drop it to the flow. Drop, drop it to the flow, Dan. <laughs> Wait, that wasn't what. <laughs> That's not what you wanted me do to you do? Wanna get, you want to guess what, what the uh, number one song is? In December of 1959 was? Uh, was it... It wasn't anything by Richie Valens. Bill, let's dead. do the Billboard year-end Hot 100 singles of 1959. Well, give me a clue. Well, I don't know. I just looked up. I've never heard of the number one song of 1959, The Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton. Oh, yeah. I think it's How's the one go? where he goes... It's like a novelty song, I think. Well, number two is Mac the Knife. I know that Bobby one. Darren, you want to sing that? Sing a song. Oh, out the on that? shark bites with his teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. The shark of my teeth, dear. Dinner at McDonald's. Out of sight. I only knew it because they had that Mac McDon- the Knife. Yeah, uh, I know. And I had love that action figure for some reason. The um the Johnny one is oh, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they ran through the bushes where the rabbit wouldn't go. They ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them going down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. I'm impressed that you know that. I think that's Johnny right. Horton, the Battle of New Orleans. I think that's what it is. Let's try it. In eighteen fourteen we took a little trip on the Colonel Chang's gonna go down the Mississippi. This was the number one song of 1959. 
Jeez, poor 1959. Here it comes, I think. Oh no. He says it at some point. That's fine. I believe you. But on December, the oh, end of December. Hold on. Here it comes. Ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they ran through the bushes where the rabbit wouldn't go. They ran so fast. Thank you for listening. This episode was brought to you by History for Jerks, producers of the Gruff and Loud Show, the Nerd School Podcast, and a bunch of other bullshit. No, no, no other bullshit. But thank you for listening. This has been season five. And 1959 also ended, though, with this is the number one song. See if you know this. Now that sounds like 1959. Yeah, this is the end of the year. December 28th. Frankie Avalon. Why? I don't know if I've ever heard that song. Thanks for listening, jerks, and it's time... To get out of here, Chuck Berry. To get out of here, Chuck Berry, and you stop... Pervert. Stop transporting children across the border and peeking at women in the bathroom yep but we'll be back with season six of american timelines will be very different probably and we're going to keep going with the friend check here and there and sprinkle it in to give any more time yes that sounds good thanks everybody love you people we love you fucking people Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.